This is Off Mic with Neil Price. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Off Mic. You know, things went so well last week, I decided I'd climb back up on the horse again this week. And I think you're really going to enjoy my guest. Oscar Combs has been a colleague of mine on the UK Sports Network for over a decade. He and I have hosted the network's football pregame show together for the last five years. For two decades, Oscar was the editor of the Cat's Paws magazine, and he's one of the great storytellers I've ever met. Oscar literally took his first steps toward becoming an editor at a very young age, walking a newspaper delivery route in Hazard, Kentucky. I was actually delivering papers at eight years old. My first uh, time of my life of earning a dollar is my dad told me I could own a bicycle if I paid for it. And I was selling the old Hazard Herald for a nickel apiece. And so we went to a, a Kenyan Auto hardware store in Hazard and bought a bike, financed it. I, I don't know that it came to this exact price, but it worked out. So my dad may have played a role in it, but it's going to cost me a dollar a week to pay for it in one year. And it just worked out to where I was selling something like 25 newspapers a day, five days a week. Once I started delivering the papers each day, I always was turning to a sports section. And suddenly it dawned on me, hey, you know, it'd be cool to have your name in there. Was that the main inspiration, reading that sports page every day? At the beginning it was. In in the mid-50s, I was starting to get a little bit more excited about it. And then Adolf Rupp come to Hazard to watch Mickey Gibson play. Uh, And Mickey Gibson is one of the great high school players in state. And a guy by the name of Earl Cox came with him to write a story. And Earl at the time was the sports editor of the Curry Journal. And I was calling in scores to the local paper, the Hazard paper. And this guy that ran the Hazard paper, now I'm getting a guy by the name of Fred Louigart, introduced me to Earl. And Earl offered me a job as a, a sophomore in high school to write a weekly column on the 14th region in basketball. And this is when I was a sophomore in high school and there began my career. What did it mean at a young age, you're in high school, to be able to write something that was going to appear in in the paper in the largest city in the state. Yeah, I actually covered the whole state. It was considered the statewide newspaper. And, and let me tell you something. I was much more impressed a few years later when I realized people in Louisville was reading what I wrote. At that point in time, I knew that would be my career. The Hazard Herald was the local paper. Uh, when did you start working there? Well, I actually worked in the uh, summers and the Christmas breaks when I was in college, which was uh, 62 to 65. Uh, and then in 66, I came back to be the news editor and the sports editor there, and I was there until 69 when a new newspaper was started in Hazard, and I became editor of it, and then I purchased it a couple, three years later, ran it for three years, sold it, decided to come to Lexington and go big time. It's hard for me in this day and age to wrap my mind around a 26 or 27-year-old purchasing a newspaper, regardless of the size of the city that it was located in. Take me through that process. How did you get in your mind that you were going to own a newspaper? Well, I had no idea I was going to at the beginning, but uh, I was working for this other company uh, out of Shelbyville, Kentucky, that had started paper, and the paper wasn't doing very well financial, putting out a good product, but it was a startup newspaper. And to be honest with you, I actually, my first newspaper I bought 
uh, was the one in Cumberland, Kentucky, which was two years before I bought the hazard paper that I was running. And the guy that owned that one uh, had to give it up. He just didn't have time with it. He was a very wealthy guy out of Shelbyville. And he said, hey, Oscar, why don't you buy this Cumberland paper? And I said, hey, I don't have any money to do that. And he said, well, he said, uh, tell you what, he said, I'll loan you the money. So he sort of loaned me $5,000, sold it to me for, I think it's something like 12000 And I bought it, and then I got, after about a year, I was making more money with a paper that I owned in Cumberland, Kentucky, doing basically no work. I had another guy to run it for me that I was making, working my butt off in Hazard. So I told the owners of the newspaper, now, you know, I think I'm just going to move to Cumberland. I can work less and make more than I'm making here. So they come back and say, well, why don't we just sell you the paper in Hazard? And so I purchased it for X amount of money with X um, amount down, and basically it was almost zero. So I couldn't lose, so I went from, okay, I'm moving from Hazard to Cumberland to, no, I'm not going to move it. So suddenly I own two papers. And uh, the one in Hazard took off very, very well to the point that some of the people that owned the other paper wanted to buy me out. And I didn't want to sell out, but one day they agreed uh, to sell. And so we were ready to close the deal. And the other side said, one last time, give us the opportunity to buy you out. And I said, well, you don't have enough money. I was being arrogant. I mean, I was feisty. You don't have enough money to buy me out. And they said, well, try us. Just, they slid me up here and said, just put a figure down there. And I put a figure down. I thought, okay, I'll show them. I put the figure down, turned around and gave it to them. And the attorney with this guy said, how do you want the money? And so suddenly I was, uh, I was unemployed, uh, did not own the paper anymore. But the good news was, the good news was that was on the morning of the, uh, second game of the World Series in Cincinnati. Cincinnati and Boston. And so I went in and told my wife, I said, honey, I said, you don't realize this, but uh, you go home and pack a suitcase. We're going to Cincinnati. She said, we're right in the middle of the week. I said, we sold the business. We're going to see the Cincinnati Reds tonight. <laughs> could, could that story happen today? Yes. I mean, I, I, I never dreamed it would have happened, but th- things happen. That's one of my famous saying. When somebody says, well, this is going to happen or that's not going to happen, and I always say, you never know. And they said, well, how could it? I said, things happen. Now, when things happen, they weren't planned to happen. Things fall in place. And things just fell in place. Me, had it not been a change in the industry at the time, in the um, late 60s, newspapers were going from letterpress, hot type, to cold type. Had I had to start a paper with cold type, it would have cost me four, five, six hundred thousand dollars. But in cold type, you didn't own a printing plant. You had somebody else to print for you. So the cost wasn't very prohibitive. You were also getting into computers. You didn't have big typesetters. You didn't have these huge presses. You sat down on a computer and you pasted up your artwork and you took it to another printer that's printing a paper another and had them to print it for you. So it wasn't that expensive to start it. And for that reason, the same way now. It's much like the Internet now. How expensive is it for you to get on the Internet and create your own .com? Who would have dreamed this 15, 20 years ago? Let's go back to the Hazard Herald. When you were there as a news editor, 
you cross paths with a guy who would uh, become the attorney general of the United States and would later go on to run for president, Robert Kennedy, and walk through the streets of Hazard with a one-on-one interview. Tell me what that experience was like. Uh, it was surreal. Um, it happened in February 68. It was less than three months before he was assassinated. And it was a big, big deal then. I'll never forget it. I had a very good friend who's no longer with us now, Virgil Napier, who was a radio man. And he had been, he was a veteran. He was eight or 10 years older than me. And, uh, when we found out that Robert Kennedy was going to do this tour through Eastern Kentucky for the national news, he said, uh, we're going to get a one on one way. I said, I know, Virgil. I said, you know, we're small. He said, watch me. He said, I'll, I'll do some calling. And he said, now, you and I are going to go down to state police barracks. We're going to talk to the commander. We'll be taken care of. And sure enough, when he, when Kennedy came up, the commander told, said, won't y'all go on up in front of us, go up there about 200 yards and says, when the limo drives up, wasn't a limo, it was a SUV, he drives up, he gets out, y'all walk right up to him, he's all yours. And so we got up there and everybody's coming there. There must have been. 30 or 40 other national media, CBS, NBC, ABC. And uh, we just jumped up and started And all these other reporters started complaining. Who are these guys? What are they doing up there? And our state police uh, commander there in Hazard took care of us. What did you talk about? Well, the first thing was is his brother, John F. Kennedy, had come up and, and did uh, a tour of Eastern Kentucky similar to that when he ran for president. And we were talking about how much it changed if any, between the two trips, and what could Eastern Kentucky really do to come out of the doldrums from losing all the coal mining jobs in the 40s and, and 50s? It's worth reminding you, too, that if, if you're young, you're, you're looking for an excuse or trying not to create an excuse maybe for being able to do something great. You did all of this from small Rural communities in eastern Kentucky. You don't have to be in a big city. All you have to do is be driven to succeed and do not be fearful of failure. If you do that, I have this opinion that perhaps many, and I'm probably a little high on this, but perhaps many, 75 or 80% of people really don't want to work. So you know what? The odds are in favor of you if you're willing to work. What they're and never, never look at the quitting time on the clock. That's huge. You're listening to Off Mic. I'm Neil Price, and I'm glad you're along for my conversation with the founder and former editor of the Cat's Paws magazine, Oscar Combs. Oscar loves Twitter. If you're not following him already, make sure you do. His Twitter handle is at Wildcat News. I hope you'll check out my website, too. The address is neilprice.net. You can listen to other episodes of Off Mic while you're there. Oscar Combs didn't leave Hazard until the mid-70s, but his writing talents weren't lost on other sports editors from larger cities. Matter of fact, the Louisville Courier-Journal tried to hire him in 1968. Yes, they did. It was the uh, the election leader did first, and uh, and I want to say 67, and what was so awesome about that time is they invited me to Lexington uh, to, for an interview and just to show me around. And uh, they took me out to Keeneland Race, uh, not Keeneland, uh, Red Mile. And they had a dinner that night. And uh, 
They had John McGill, who was the senior sports editor of the Herald at the time there, and me and a guy named Claude Sullivan. And this was Claude's last year. He had just finished. His last uh, broadcast was really with the Reds, and he had throat cancer. And I got a picture at home of the three of us together. Uh, I mean, I was I, I literally was sweating when I shook Claude Sullivan's hand. And uh, so it, they first offered me a job, and, and I turned it down. And then Earl Cox, my old mentor, offered me the job to come to Louisville for the Courier Journal for the Kentucky Beat. And uh, <laughs> that's what I've been striving for my entire life was, was that job. And it's like that proverbial saying, uh, you know, it's like a dog. They chase those tires, but when they get up to it, they don't know how to handle it. And uh, I got cold feet. Wasn't the first time I got cold feet, but I got cold feet, and uh, I was looking for a way to say no. And uh, finally, Earl told me, he said, well, Oscar, I just got one one thing I need to tell you about, because here in Louisville, we don't have a lot of parking at, uh, at the Curry Journal building on Broadway. And I said, well, what's that? And he said, well, says, since we don't have any parking, you're going to have to find a place to park every day. And there is a commercial parking garage across the street, but it is $22 a month. And I said, oh, well, Earl, I'm not coming. I've never paid $22 to park in my life. And that was how I weaseled out of it. Worked out okay, though. But but when did you realize that you were going to have to come out of the mountains, you were going to have to come to a place like Lexington or Louisville, if you were ever going to reach your full potential in this business? You know, it didn't happen that way. Uh, what really happened is I'd sold the newspaper in Hazard in uh, October 75, and I still had the paper in Cumberland this time, so I was going over doing a little bit there. And it got around in January and February, and I would still come down to the U.K. games. And Kentucky wasn't having a good season that year. Roby got hurt, and at one point uh, they were 10-10 and 10 in the league, and uh, – uh, you didn't take many teams to the NCAA then, but Kentucky got on a roll and won their last four games, last six games in a regular season. Went 16 and 10 and got an invitation, Madison Square Garden in New York, uh, when the tournament was pretty good, uh, because you were only taking at that time, I think 24 teams to the NCAA. So Kentucky got invited and, and a good friend of mine, Ray Hornbeck, who's a VP at UK at the time, called me up and said, Hey, Oscar. You got nothing to do. We're putting together this group for the UK alumni. Why don't you and Donna join us? Go up there. Uh, it's just going to be a three day trip. They're not going to win any games up there. If they do it, most of it will be won. We'll fly up on a Wednesday. They'll play on a Thursday and they'll play again on Saturday. If they ain't, we'll come home. And I said, sure. Okay. So we did part of it and, uh, we got up there. That was both Donna and, I, and my first trip to New York, by the way, too. So we really enjoyed it. We had the first game and then the second game, and they won. Well, everybody else was coming back home, so I went up to to uh, Ray Hornbeck and said, hey, you know, we went up on a group fare on a commercial airline, so it wasn't a charter. And I said, I, I want, we're, we're going to stay. You know, they may win this whole thing. So anyway, we ended up staying for another week, and they continued winning. And I'll never forget the third game there. We'd been sitting with the Kentucky group, and we were sitting behind Dr. Singletary and Ray Hornbank and a couple board of trustees and for the first two games. And the third game we got there, there was nobody there except Donna and I, because they'd all come back on a charter, except there were three guys sitting to the left of me. 
I'd never met them. I just assumed they were, you know, somebody within the alumni group. So they're still sitting there for the third game. And I strike up a conversation with them, and they talk about how they're big Kentucky fans. And I said, well, where are you guys from? They said one was from New York, one was from Philadelphia, and one was from Boston. And they said, uh, told me where they were from, so they were just big U.K. fans. And I said, well, where, what's y'all's connection to Kentucky? Never been to Kentucky before in our life. Wow. And I, I said, well, I don't understand. They said, here's a plug for the network now. Said, uh, we've been listening to Kentucky since the forties on WHAS, 50,000 watts out of Louisville. And we're big Kentucky fans. And so after the game and that, we're back to the hotel and we're talking. I said, honey, you know, those three guys are big Kentucky fans. You know, why don't we just start a newspaper on the Kentucky Wildcats? They're everywhere and right here is proof of it. So that was the seed of starting the cat's paws. Right there at Madison Square Garden in New York City. I read an article in the Courier Journal. Adam Himmelsback did a few years ago. It was originally, there was an idea that it was going to be a paper about the Cincinnati Reds, not about the Kentucky Wildcats. And you told the story, obviously, about being in New York and how that, that influenced what you thought it should be. How did you convince whoever helped you get it off the ground at Landmark that it needed to be about Kentucky and not about the Reds. He had the money. So they, they started the Reds alert and it went well for, I want to say six, seven, eight years, but it finally died. So when it came time to me, it was strictly my decision. And I just felt like that with a Kentucky newspaper around the country, you could get a red score. You could get a box score anywhere in the United States of America. But if Kentucky were playing and not in the top 10, you didn't even get a line score. You got the final score, and that was it. And I just felt like there was more interest. Not that there's more Kentucky fans than there are Reds fans, even though I'll debate that. Uh, but that was the real reason. And then I'd made my mind up in New York during the NIT that I was going to get with three people and see if there was blessings or uh, roadblocks to stop it, and that was Cliff Hagen, the AD, and Joe Hall, the basketball coach, and Fran Kersey, the football coach. And I'd had a fairly decent relationship with Fran Kersey because he spent a lot of time in Hazard when he was coaching Kentucky. So I, I figured he would be for it. And then Joe, I didn't know. I, I, I Joe's first year is, or second year as coach at Kentucky when Ray Mears was at Tennessee. Uh, they had some real battles. And it was a, a pretty... Um, Pretty bitter split between the university and Adolph Rupp when he hung it up. So when Joe replaced him, there were a lot of people blamed Joe. And and there was at one time during the season that Tennessee was going bad and Kentucky was going bad. Kentucky was 13-13 that second year. I wrote a, I wrote a nasty column. It's probably the one column I've written that I would take back immediately if I could. But I didn't like Ray Mears. And I didn't like the fact Kentucky was headed for a So I wrote this column about a white towel and how that they ought to just, you know, give it to, uh, give it to Joe Hall one half and Ray Mears the other half and just let them cry their eyes loud. (laughs) And, uh, so anyway, um, that was, that was the, uh, where Joe came in and when I met with him, I'm thinking, Oh boy, you know, this may not be nice. So I went in and sat down and, uh, Joe, and he, oh yeah. And he reaches down in the drawer and pulls.
pours out that column, that paper. I'm like, uh oh. He said, were you the guy that wrote this? Now, I suspect somebody knew I was coming to talk to him and dug that out. I don't think Joe really had that as well. But anyway, he said, I just want you to know that anything that will publicize Kentucky sports, I'm for it. You can count me in on anything you want. And he was really a big help. Cliff was always sort of the guy on the fence post. And uh, I asked each one of them if they would like to write a letter about me starting the paper that we could put in the first issue. We gave away 50,000 copies at Commonwealth Stadium. September, 40 years ago this September. Uh, there are about 10,000 still laid on the ground after the game. <laughs> but uh, we, uh, we, put, we put that out and actually... Cliff came back and said, yeah, I have the, I have the letter for you. Well, we got ready to print this unit. We never got it. So we put it out. We had a letter from Fran. We had a letter from Joe Wendler, none from Cliff, but nobody knew we'd try to get it. So the Tuesday, the Monday after that game, I get a call from Cliff's office. It's a secretary said, Mr. Combs says, you forgot to come by and pick up that letter last week. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, we had that letter to go into the paper. and says, Cliff really wanted to be in there with the rest of them. I said, well, I'll come by and pick it up, but nobody ever called me about it. So I go by and pick it up, and we run it next issue. But the amazing thing, this is a letter he supposedly had before the paper came out. And he starts that letter with, by hearty congratulations on the finest example of journalism in your first issue. Your relationship with Joe Hall, you were worried that it was going to get off to a little bit of a, a shaky start because of that article, but it's worth mentioning, too, that you and Coach Hall are still very good friends, right? The best of friends. He, he's like a, a second dad to me, and we've been the best friends throughout the last 40 years. The only thing ever came up with Joe, and this was uh, probably somewhere around 79 or 80, and we ran letters to the editor. Had a good batch up. And as long as they weren't vulgar and signed their name to them, we'd run them. So back then, we purchased a seat on the charter plane for both football and baseball, as the Herald and the Leader did, too, before they merged. And uh, so on this one particular flight we're on, and uh, I get on, and as I get on, Joe's always in the first seat, and he gets on usually in front of everybody else. And when I got on, he says, sit here with me. And he only did that one time. So I sat down, and I thought, uh-oh. And we sat there about 35, 40 minutes, and he's reading the papers, and then he turned to chat something. I said, what do you want to talk about? And he picked up the cat's paws. He had that one of them. He said, who makes a decision on putting those letters to the editor in there? And I said, I do. He said, that's some of those are the stupidest DAM and things I've ever seen. I said, Yeah. I said, you recognize that, and I reckon it. Don't you think the readers recognize that, too? Well, then why do you run them? I said, well, Joe, let me think. let you think about it this way. How many times do I go in there and correct those people or write a column saying they don't know what they're talking about? Well, you wouldn't have to do that if you didn't print them. I said, yeah, but that shows the people reading the paper that we're going to show both sides. They'll give me, They'll give you more respect when I defend you when they know that I run those letters than if I didn't run them at all. And I forget he sat there and paused and looked at me for what seemed like an eternity and it's probably five seconds. He said, oh, okay. Never another word. What went into producing a typical issue 
of the cat's paws. I thought it would be neat to have a cartoon drawing of a former All-American. We had a series of that that ran for about four years. And it's a full page, something you could take out and have them autograph if you wanted to. And it was our way of bringing the young people in the late 70s in connection with the people in the 30s and 40s. I mean, by the late 70s, a lot of people didn't know Ralph Beard and Wawa Jones, even though they were the Fabulous Five. And then we had a couple, we had the letters to editor, which I thought was essential. And then we had an editorial page, which was unique for anything like that. And we would always talk about a topic. We'd have one lead editorial that would, and it usually was something that the NCAA was dealing with or should be dealing with. And then we'd have a guest columnist. The thing that we had that I really enjoyed most, I ran across a guy in uh, Michigan who did crossword puzzles. I mean, this thing was extremely popular. We'd run the crossword this week, but not the answer until next week. And he would incorporate it in it. He, he did one in football and then did one in basketball. And it was all about the history of UK, Final Fours and all that. I mean, it was extremely popular. Those three items right there, plus we just loaded it with pictures. It was uh, in the late 70s was the early days of Offset Press. And before Offset Press, your pictures are horrible newspapers. So that was the things that really got us. Plus we had five columnists. A guy named Bob Watkins and Larry Vaught was with us from the very beginning. Larry, good friend down in Danville. Bob from out in E-Town. And then we had, oh, I guess 12, 15 others over time. Dan Weber, who is now with a website out in uh, Southern California, does the USC uh, website out there. So we had five columnists that did the things. And it was, we did the game. We did early recruiting. We were doing recruiting before AAU. There were big camps in uh, Rensselaer, Indiana, BC camps that were sponsored by Converse, and Milledgeville, Georgia. Those were the ones that contained. And then you had the ABCD camp. You had the Garfinkel camp, some of them. Uh, really exciting times back then that not many people knew about. I'm glad you mentioned the website and the fact that Dan went on to, to run one of these websites, one now of umpteen that exist in college athletics. Every team has at least one. Most have multiple ones. But it all started in, in, in its very basic form with what you were doing with the cat's paws in the late mid late seventies. Did you know at that time you were ahead of the curve? I thought we were. Uh, in seventy six when we started, we were the very first one. And uh, once we started, all of a sudden, these uh, independents started taking out. A few schools started their own. The second publication like us, believe it or not, Mississippi State, a magazine called The Dog's Bite. And then the third one was LSU. And after about two years, we were the kings of the world. Everybody's looking, well, what's all these magazines doing down in the south? I didn't think people could read down there. And we were ahead of the curve, and then got into the Big Ten, the ACC, and, and went on to the West Coast. But yeah, it was uh, it was uh, a changing of times. And what the coaches in the SEC liked about it, it was good for their recruiting. Uh, high school kids see a big full page in, in a magazine was big time stuff. And for us here, one of the things I did, I don't know that our coaches here fully embraced it, but. I always made it a point to put every SID, every coach that played Kentucky on my mailing list free of charge. And then each year we did a 
double-page spread Q&A with every head coach in the SEC during the season. They were very, very quick, particularly in basketball, to make sure that they'd accommodate me because Hugh Durham said, hey, I get better recruiting results out of the cat's paws than I do here in Georgia. <laughs> you know, and, and, and at that time in the 70s and 80s, we had a crew of basketball coaches with personalities that they couldn't touch today. The first edition of the Cat's Paws had 450 subscribers. By the time that you sold the paper, it had peaked at about 25,000, I think, somewhere in there. Did you ever imagine 1976, when you're getting it off the ground, it would grow to be that big? And then embracing the Internet the way that you have, how much bigger could it have been at that time had some vehicle like that been available to you? Probably wouldn't have been as successful, believe it or not, because it would have been competition. When we started out, we had no con- – that was one of the things that allowed it to succeed. I mean, today, the trouble is 10 people a day is trying to start a website. So it's sort of like cable television. Back in the old days before cable television, ABC, CBS, NBC, three people can cut a pipe pretty good, but 333 people have a problem. So I think that it it would have been neat in a way, but – the fact we were able to grow the first year, you know, 450 subscribers, then anybody other than a stubborn hillbilly would have called it quits and went on to something else. But people were telling me I wasn't going to make it six months. I wasn't going to make it one year, two years. So I promised myself I'd give it two years. And what we did that first year, that it was baby steps. People in business told me 90% of all the new business fail within five years. The ones that make it don't make a penny for the first three years. And I'm like, ah, you know, I've, I had a new paper in Hazard, and it was a little bit different. But it turned out to be the traditional way. So the first year, every time we would go on the road, uh, we went uh, either Kansas or Kansas State in 76. And I would always load up 500 papers with me and put them in the belly of the charter flight. And when I'd get to wherever we were playing, I think this was in uh, Manhattan, maybe K-State, uh, I'd get a rental car. And then I'd go to every hotel around within, say, 15 miles of the stadium, put 25 in the lobby of every hotel. Assuming maybe some Kentucky fans there would go in there and stay there, see that, pick it up, buy it. And uh, we did that in Waco, Texas in 1977, the second game played down there in Kentucky. I waxed pretty good. Uh, but we put them in all the hotels in Dallas and Waco. And over the next three years, suddenly we popped up with close to 500 subscribers in the neighbor there. So it, it was little tricks like that that guided. And then it was the rabbit effect after that. If one person in Dallas had it, we would make sure we would have one of our monthly issues to come out the week before the derby. Very important because we didn't get that paper in the home of a Kentuckian the week before the Derby, we knew it was going to be on the coffee table in the living room. And anybody they invited that were Kentucky-related, Kentucky influence for the Derby party is going to see that. That may have been my stroke of genius, and I didn't have many of them. But, boy, over the years that paid off. And it was two or three years after that, and I got a call from a person in Los Angeles who had been to a derby party in Dallas with a friend, said, hey, I was in Dallas a couple of years ago, and we saw this cat's paws uh, at the derby party. 
uh, we've got a pretty good alumni group out here in Southern California, UK. Is there any way we can get some of the cat's paws out here for our derby party? I'm like, you want me to drive them out there today? <laughs> <laughs> and so we sent out like 200 of them. And I mean, it was like a frenzy. So it's the little things you do that gives you total success at the end. It's not any one thing. It's the addition of many little things. Ultimately, there's a lot of hard work that goes into that. And, and I don't want to leave this chapter on, on, on a sour note, but you had health complications that arose late. And, and I can't help but wonder how much stress you were putting on yourself the day to day, the long hours, small staff, putting this thing together week after week after week for 20 years. Was that the signal that maybe it was time to get out? And had it not happened, do you think you would have stayed in a little bit longer? Had I not had two bypasses, yes, I definitely would have stayed in it longer. The first one got my attention. It's sort of like sometimes you have to take a baseball bat to a head twice. First time, get your attention, but you don't learn your lesson. And saying that, yeah, I, looking back on it, I did not know it at the time, but looking back on it, I, I've always been sort of a perfectionist. And I would go to sleep at night's thinking about two little things that need to be done the next day. And I'm also uh, uh, a type of person that when I get into something, I don't want to even stop for lunch. I mean, A personality, no. A triple plus, yes. And and so it was those things, and we succeeded. And by the time that we got to the second one in 96, which we were just in starting in the midst of a three-year Final Four run and two championships. And I had my second one in January of 96. By 97, I realized, you know what? You want to live a long time with a wife and a, and a beautiful daughter. And so I said, hey, time to move on. The people that started me out many, many years earlier, the newspaper out of Shelbyville, the president of it was a good personal friend of mine. He did my taxes for years and years on the side. And he came visit me after I had my second bypass. And he said, now, we're right here for you all the way. He said, but just want to say one thing. If you ever decide to sell, you know, just let us know. We don't want them. We don't want to wake up some morning and find out you'd sold it to somebody. And we didn't have an opportunity. And so two or three months later, you know, here, here, and all of a sudden, offer they made me, I said, it's time. A little bit better than the offer to buy the uh, the old East Kentucky voice back in the day, right? Uh, just a tad. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Off Mic. I'm Neil Price. Oscar Combs is my guest this week. Make sure you follow Oscar on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Wildcat News, and he's always sharing his opinions about sports stories from around Kentucky and the Southeastern Conference. If this is the first time you've listened to the program, I invite you to check out the off-mic archives on my website, neilprice.net. The voice of the Wildcats, Tom Leach, visited with me last week. Our conversation is archived on the website. Oscar Combs' publishing career may have come to an end in 1996, but as that door closed, another one opened. I asked Oscar about how the Cat's Paws made a way for him to join the U.K. Sports Network. Well, it, it all happened at the same time. Jim Host, Ralph Hacker, and Ralph, late Ralph Gabbard was always great supporters and friends of mine from the get-go. I went to all three of those 
when I first got ready to start the Cats because I'd known Ralph seven or eight years before that. I'd known Jim a little bit before that too. First time I ever met Jim Hose was when I had the paper in Hazard and he come out politicking for lieutenant governor. And I could tell after 30 minutes with him in Hazard, Kentucky, he's going to wind up on top somewhere where it was politics or business and it was business. And I got to know Ralph Gabbard when I got down here. So we, I'd worked with Jim on three or four book projects I wrote for him. Jim Hose, that is. Uh, Ralph and I were together. Uh, I spent my first advertising dollar on the Cat's Paws buying spots on the U.K. football pregame show when it was only 30 minutes with just Ralph and, and Kay Wood. Uh, I think that Ralph thought he had the best of it, but I got the best of him in the end. And then, of course, with Ralph Gabbard just being together. So when I sold the paper in 96, um, I agreed to stay on to write the column, the lead column, for five more years. And that was when uh, suddenly uh, Ralph and them decided to add another 30 minutes to their one-hour pregame show. And the two Ralphs called me and Dave Baker up and said, hey, would you all be interested in doing a 45 minutes of the 90 minutes as call-ins with fans? And that's how it started. What was that like? Well, the, the neat thing was... And, and Dave is sitting here and, uh, and, and they're asking, okay, should we do this pregame or postgame? And I quickly said, pregame. They said, well, why? And I said, well, I don't want to be stuck around for an extra hour and a half after game. I want to get home. Now that wasn't the real reason. The real reason was I'd learned long ago fans aren't near as mad before, mad before game as they are after a loss. And, uh, the other thing is the fans out there at bars and stuff, they haven't liquored up at 6.30 or 7 o'clock for a 9 o'clock game like they have at 11 o'clock after the game. So we immediately went with pregame. And that proved to be a very smart move at the get-go. Who's the best Kentucky basketball player you ever saw? Well, first of all, let me emphasize what you just said there. The best Kentucky player I ever saw. Now, I never saw the Fabulous Five play. Didn't see Ramsey and Hagen play in college. I did see them play in the pros. So from 57-58 on Anthony Davis, without question, best player, wear the blue and white that I've seen. Now, tell me about Johnny Cox. Because Johnny <laughs> Cox, a lot of people thought, was one of the best players ever played. Yeah, different era. And this is one of the things I have problems in uh, trying to communicate with the millennials of today. Different era, different players, different styles, different rules, different bodies. You can't even compare players 25 years apart, let alone 50 or 60. But he was the hard-nosed player, uh, learned the game in a little place called Neon, Kentucky, transferred from Neon to Hazard when, hey, recruiting went on in those days too. Not, <laughs> not just parochial schools today. And uh, had a great career at Hazard. And he came down, and he was with the other players like that. They – you know, the, you, you, uh, you just had a different feel. Uh, not many people got to see the Wildcats in those days. 57, 58, there was no TV of them, or at least out in the state. And, uh, you were listening to Claude Sullivan or Kay Wood Lifford call them. And, uh, they were, they, they just captured the, uh, love of the entire state. And you still have people go back to those days now. You saw games at Memorial Coliseum and at Rupp Arena. Tell me how those two venues differed. Well, 
Memorial Coliseum, uh, when they built that, that was uh, a, a lot of tears flow when people first walked in there because that was to honor all the men and women who had lost their lives fighting for this country. The first game I ever saw there was a 1954 Kentucky State High School basketball tournament, which my school happened to play in, Dillstone's High. And they had beat the number one team in the state in the opening round, Louisville Mail with the great Kenny Coon. And so, well, like, man, this is going to be neat, you know, going to win this title and everything. Well, next nine, our team got beat by uh, a team from the mountains that ended up going on and winning the state tournament. So, but from 54 through 76, that was a sacred building. I mean, you went in there. I can remember when I started covering Kentucky with the runs in 65-66, the students would be lined up around the building for maybe a day waiting to get in. And when they went in, it was, there was certain games that were more important than others, and particularly when you got into the conference. And the big deal was is when Florida or Tennessee came to town, uh, they always managed to keep overripened oranges <clears throat> in the cafeteria and they would give them away at noon on the days they played those two teams. And when you came in to play at Memorial as a visiting team, you had to enter the gymnasium from the Euclid Street side through the main entrance. And then you had to walk down the side of the floor to go back into the visitor's locker room, which meant you had to pass about 3,000 U.K. students that had been sitting in there since 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And when you went through there, uh, you got a taste of orange where you were looking for orange aid or not. <laughs> you were close to Adolf Rupp and visited with him frequently, uh, I guess, post-coaching at Kentucky. Uh, went to his home many times. Uh, what was your relationship like with the Baron? And, and give me a good story about him. I, I really got close to him the last year and a half when I moved to Lexington. He Passed away in December of 77. I'd come down here in May of 76. And it wasn't intended that way. I don't care what anybody says. I didn't look where he lived and put down stakes 300 yards away from it, but it ended up that way. So I went by and visited with him usually about three times a week. And I would run a little errands for him to the, uh, to the post office. He was all the time getting things uh, sent to him, wanting autograph, and he'd autograph them, and I'd take them back to the post office. But uh, I'd got to know him, know him a little bit earlier when I was in Hazard. He was really good friends with Willie Daher of the Daher yeah. store chains. And Willie would bring him to Hazard to help him sell suits. And I'll tell you two stories real quickly. And one of them was is that uh, when he would bring him to Hazard, he'd say, come up, coach her up, and I'll give you three new suits. And, and Rupp could be, you know, he, you can get his attention real quick for a nice new suit. So he would come up and they would go in there and they would suit him all up. And back then you had to do alterations on suits. Your, your paints weren't cuffed, you know, and sometimes you had to let a sleeve out. So they would size him up and do all that. And, and Willie would say, let's go up to La Citadel and have dinner and time dinner's over, have everything done. Well, then after everything's done at 7 o'clock, they go back to the store that closed at 5, and there'd be a 100 men in there. Every banker, every lawyer, every business owner in town is in there. And guess what? Willie said up, hey, come down. We got some new suits in this week. We're going to have 
Adolph Ruff here to mingle with you. So Adolph would end up selling a hundred suits. He'd get his three and everybody was lovely. Uh, and, and so I got to have dinner with him many times that way. And then when we got down here, the, the best story on Adolph also involved Coach Hall. And we were getting ready to do our first basketball issue of the first year. And I've been working on it in the summer. And I had a friend in Kansas who was a well-known NCAA sports artist, did all the artwork for the NCAA, Ted Watts, great artist. And he called me one day and he said, hey, he said, I want to do the cover for your basketball issue. And he's a big Kansas fan. And uh, he said, I've all, I, I tell you what I want. I said, well, how do you know what I want? He said, I'm going to tell you what I want. I want you to take a picture of Coach Hall and Coach Rupp in front of the Rupp Arena, and I'll make a painting of it. It'll be gorgeous. And he was wanting it because of Coach Rupp's association with Kansas. Nice. And so he did it. Uh, and in the process, I had to get the two together for the picture. So I had to go sell Coach Hall first. Hey, you know, what about this for our first? And this is also the opening game, opening of Rupp Arena as well. And he said, well, yeah, I'd, like, I'd love to do that. He said, have you got Coach Rupp to agree to it? Now, at this time, I still don't know what the relationship is between Coach Rupp and Coach Hall. So I go to Coach Rupp and tell him, and uh, he yeah, I'll be happy to. So I call Coach Hall back. We set up a date, and he said, now, is Coach Rupp going to come down, or are you going to get him? And I said, well, I'm, I'm going to go get him. And he said, well, won't you come out and get me first? We'll go get him together. We do. We take it down. We make the picture. Everything is lovely. So we get it all done. We, we put the painting in the, that edition of paper. When I see it in that paper, I said, you know what? This has got to be a painting printed. So I print 500 copies of it. And when I get them in, I think, well, I'm going to go take Coach Hall some and Coach Rupp some. So I go down and take Coach Hall 10, and I got thinking, well, I'll do, I won't get 10 signed for me. So I go down and I take him 20, sign 10 for me and 10 for me. Fine. He said, you're going to get Coach Rupp to sign your print? And I'm like, uh. Yeah, probably so. Been very nonchalant as how I said it. He said, would you mind taking mine and getting him to sign mine too? And I said, sure. So I get it and I'm feeling pretty good about it. Man, I, I'm, I'm mixing oil and water here. Coming out pretty good. Yeah. And, and so I go to Coach Rupp and he sits down. And so I take him 30, my 10, Coach Hall's 10 and his 10. And he notices that, you know, that Coach Hall's already on, you know, 20 of them, not 10 because I didn't know. So I get him all the time. He said, you go by basketball house very often? I said, well, coach, you know, sometimes went every day. But I wasn't going to tell him that I'm still trying to be a peacemaker. He said, well, would you mind taking mine down to see if Coach Hall would sign them for me? I said, hallelujah. I mean, so I take them down, and I don't tell Joe this story for Probably several years he knows it now. I've told him several times. But I, I take him down and uh, give him to him. So about three weeks later, I'm back Coach Rupp's office one morning, or his house, not his office. He had a little desk and everything. There. He said, Oscar says, I really need these tubes taken to the post office for me. 
And uh, he said, I got two for my sisters and one for my, I think he said brother or uncle. And I said, sure, coach. He said, when I don't have any post, I said, I'll take care of the postage. And they were, you know, big, long, about three foot tubes. I said, coach, what do you got in these? He said, you know, I got to thinking. You remember the print you brought out here to me, those 10? I said, yeah. And he said, I thought it'd be a nice Christmas gift for my sisters and brothers. How about that? That stayed with me up to this day and will forever. Who's the best football player you ever saw at Kentucky? Mm, that's tough. There have been some great ones. Let's say I named 10. I'll put three. I'm not going to box myself out here. But I, I definitely have uh, Derek Ramsey, Art Steele, Tim Couch. There's three. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 there's a couple more that, uh, you know, um, I'll leave it at that. There's a loyal group of people, loyal group of fans that want Kentucky football to be a consistent winner. And if it ever gets rolling, it, it would be amazing to see what a Saturday would be like at Commonwealth Stadium, wouldn't it? Yes, it would. Uh, you know, it, it's been so difficult over the years. They, they've had really two really good seasons since 1953, and that's all. I mean, yeah, 84, 80, uh, 80, 84 and 3 were nice years. But if you're going to talk about SEC football, you know, you got to be better than that. Uh, the nice run by Rick Brooks, but we're talking about seven and five seasons. I don't know where it will ever happen. I, I made a lot of friends feel uncomfortable with me over the years for saying what I've just said and what I'm going to say. Anything is possible. I know that, but after since 1953, we're going on 61 years now and what you've got to show for it. At some, if this was a business, it would have been closed down a long time ago. I think uh, a lot of football diehards that are football fans only, and there's a lot of basketball that way too, think that basketball holds it back. I used to say there's no truth to that. I still don't necessarily believe it, but I can understand how a person would hold that view. I just think for a Kentucky to play in the SEC and to play the schedule they play, particularly with the Louisville schedule, a good year is going to be seven and five, and a good year should be better than seven and five. It's just very, very difficult. This is Off Mike. I'm Neil Price. I appreciate you listening to the program. Did you know you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes? It's amazing. Just go to the iTunes store, search for Off Mic with Neil Price, and once you find it, click the subscribe button, and the podcast will be delivered to you each week. Oscar Combs is my guest. In addition to covering the Kentucky Wildcats for the last 40 years, Oscar is also an avid collector of sports memorabilia. What's your favorite piece in your collection? Yeah, you're getting back on these. Let me give you the top 50, <laughs> not the top 10 or top 5. But I'll, I'll, I'll give you three or four special things, and they may not even be my top three, but they're things I think about real quickly. I've got a, a piece of the net from the 78, 96, 98, and 12 goals. I've got uh, I've got the freshman jersey, freshman road jersey of the great Ralph Beard. Uh, I, I shudder to even think 
if somebody put it on the market, what that would be worth and what it meant because he was an Olympian as well. And to have a jersey, and I mean, it's cotton. The letters are cotton. And they don't make those anymore. No, they don't. I, I think those those things right there is sort of a special, special. And then there's there's been a number of other things. I've got uh, I've got a jar of peaches that friend Kersey gave me from the uh, 1976 Peach Bowl. He passed out <laughs> jars of peaches. Uh, so they're, they're just you know little things like that that uh, that's very special. And a couple of autograph things of Coach Rupp. A lot of people will listen to this on a Thursday. Um, this particular Thursday that's coming up as we record this is the same Thursday of the NBA draft. And there have been a ton of Kentucky players whose names have been called uh, over the last uh, several years uh, in the NBA draft, especially since John Calipari has been the coach at Kentucky. Um, what do you think that's done for interest in professional basketball just in the state, do you think it's it's heightened that interest, or was it something you think because it's such a basketball centric place, people were watching it anyway? I think it's it's, it's been tremendously uh, positive for the NBA within the state of Kentucky, just because of all the Kentucky players. I think looking at a larger thing, the NBA is getting such worldwide attention now, and it all started with Magic and and uh, and Larry Bird and and those guys back in the eighties. But along came Jordan, and then it exploded. And now we were getting to another era of, you know, of LeBron doing his thing uh, last week. I, I just think that they got to be careful, though, because you have a couple bad years right now in college, and you've lost your fans to the NBA. Because once you watch the Anthony Davis, the Michael Kidd, Gilchrist, the Terrence Jones of the world, there, you start seeing the other players. You see the Kevin Durant. You see the Westbrook. Uh, you see LeBron, you see the Splash Brothers. So you get into it. And, and the last five years, I bought the NBA package every year. And I'm telling you, most nights, I'm watching it, unless it's Kentucky, I'm watching the NBA games to have a college game. And, you know, that, that's a one in down. Most schools don't have the number one in Duns that Kentucky has. But, it, you know, it is a much better game once you've watched it for a full season on a nightly basis than just watch it once or twice a year and say, ah, they don't play any defense till the fourth quarter. And let me tell you, you don't get that big contract for playing the last five minutes of the fourth quarter. When you look at this year's draft, uh, the two names that come up, I think, primarily for Kentucky are Jamal Murray and Scala BCA. Um, do you think both those guys wind up in the lottery? Yeah, I, th- I think Murray definitely does. Uh, he could go anywhere. Probably won't go to, but probably three to three to seven, depending on how it falls with a couple other. There could be some trades, you know, that happen before tonight that changes things. Scal's a little bit different situation. I see him anywhere from seven to thirteen, and I don't know that I would want to even lock him into that. I mean, if certain things happen. He could drop to 16 or 17 and out of the lottery. All of his workouts, I've been told, have been very, very good these last two or three weeks. But there's still that sting of this regular season. He is going to be drafted high based strictly on potential down the line. And there's a lot of people looks at things. He did have a good run right there near the end of the season. Played a lot better uh, when he was allowed to face the bucket. 
and take the little jumper out on the floor more. So probably 7 to 13 is accurate. Tyler Eudis, there's been a lot of rumors about a hip injury. I'm not smart enough or involved enough to know whether that is true or not. He's a competitor, though, isn't he? he he's a competitor. Uh, th- th- this is a one-plus for Kentucky kids now, is you don't want to get on Ka- John Calipari's bad side. So you're not going to see anybody of any name crit- critique Cal and say, this kid is not as good as Cal does, because Cal will come back and he'll blast that guy for two years. Not the player, but the guy who made the statement. So I think some of the Kentucky players and other fringe players are getting a little bit bump at the end because they think, you know, I'm going to go down there and recruit that uh, next guy, not recruit him, but watch him, and I want to be able to get a good seat at Rupp. And you and I both know that where your friend or foe depends on where you set it, Rupp. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think I think that uh, unless there is really something physically to Tyler's situation, I think he goes late in the first round. Thank you for great stories. Uh, thank you for sharing uh, the knowledge of those early days and and the great stories about how it turned into even better days when, when you and Donna and, and, and the family got here. And uh, I really appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Neil. Thanks for a friendship. And, uh, you know, there's nothing like sports and the memories that go with them. Again, I appreciate Oscar Combs taking the time to share some of his memories with me. And thank you so much for listening. Remember, you can hear more conversations just like this one on my website, neilprice.net. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Search for Off Mic with Neil Price. I'll talk to you next time.